all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitch at All Bad Things Pod. Email us allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group, our Discord, and our subreddit. Do all of those things. It's not mine. I put, <laughs> I put my drink way over here so I don't spill it again. <laughs> well, you know, things happen. Mm-hmm. No big deal. Not only is it way over here, but it even has a lid on it, so I would have to reach all the way back here. And, and even somehow then, knock the lid off. Fully unscrew yeah. the lid. I'm sure you'll figure out a way. <laughs> if anyone could, it would be me. <laughs> ah. Uh, episode 301. Uh, crazy. <laughs> I know. I mean, really. When we're going to be doing a lot of recording the next couple weeks. Yes, we are. Cash these up. All right. Cash me, me outside. I was thinking the same thing. Um, we're also going to be doing, at least I have it planned to do, a much more lighthearted episode when we're done with the Challenger. <laughs> yeah. We're going to need it after three weeks of talking about really, really, really bummer stuff. <clears throat> so, uh, David, would you care to recap last week's episode since we recorded it yesterday? We did, last night. <laughs> Uh, pretty much exactly 24 hours ago. Yeah. Uh, last night's recap were was about the brief history of NASA and about all of the the crew, all of their, their personal bio and. We didn't do a brief history of NASA. Yeah, we did. Like with the shuttle program. The shuttle program. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I thought you meant the agency. No, like we no, did no. not specifically. Gotcha. Yeah. We got into the shuttle program a little bit, but we yeah. mostly mm-hmm. got into the the people on board, which. Right. I thought was the most important aspect because that mm-hmm. often gets overlooked. Yes, and I'm going to keep with that. We sure. are going to continue to focus on the crew in this uh, this installment, which was super fun when we talked about their lives. Yeah. It will not be as fun when we talk about their deaths. No. So this is just, you know, trigger warning for everything. This is a bummer of an episode. Because we're going to get into how and how quickly and a lot of other things did this crew die. Mm. So, it'll be a grim, mm. I'll say that, right? So. so, is it safe to say that, so episode <clears throat> one was essentially the setup, mm-hmm. episode two we're going to get into the actual incident, right? then episode three will be the fallout. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. You got it. So, this is part two, Challenger part two, where we've been, where we're going, why? Mm. And you'll see why. I, well, how I named these first two episodes, you'll see... Um, as we proceed. So, on January 28th, 1986, the U.S. Space Shuttle Challenger exploded shortly after launch in front of an international television audience of millions, killing all seven people on board. The incident is often described as a defining moment in the lives of those who witnessed it. And um, when we get to an appropriate point, I'd like to hear your memories of that as well. Sure. So, primary sources for this episode were Grunge, NASA, NBC News, UPI, and Wikipedia. Oh, and ChatGPT. Always ChatGPT. <laughs> All right, so now we are... That's, that's how it always starts. <laughs> AI starts weaseling its yes. way into your life. All right, so we are getting into the actual disaster. Um, I, you know, I said it in the last episode, it's hard to put any sort of a new spin on such a well-trodden topic. Um... Uh, so yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna primarily focus on my biggest question about the, the disaster, which was, did the crew suffer? Mm-hmm. Right? Because once we're talking about X number of people died, whether it's thousands, whether yeah. it's a couple people, whatever, the main thing is, we know they died. There's nothing we can do about that. It's, you can only hope. Hope mm-hmm. they didn't suffer. Exactly. So, um, and... 
I'm, I'll say the word explosion. It may or may not be the correct word, but we're going to get into that next week, right? When we talk about the what happened. Yes, we'll say O-ring 27 billion times, you know, all that stuff. Well, explosion was certainly the proper term when you're watching it on TV. That's what, well, that's exactly what it looked like, right? Uh-huh. So, it was yep. like, uh... Mm-hmm. So the actual, here's something like, what was Challenger actually supposed to do? Like if it had launched successfully, traveled successfully, landed successfully, what would a successful Challenger mission have looked like? Um, So the mission that it was set out to accomplish was to observe Halley's Comet for 40 hours. Oh, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and to do it while they watch on board, while they watch Night of the Comet. What is Night of the Comet? Night of the Comet. We might be able... I'm sure it's got to be free on YouTube. It is a schlocky 80s like horror film, but it, it stands the test of time because it's actually kind of hilarious. Because is, it, is it about Halley's Comet? It is. Really? It turns everybody into like dust instead, except for like a, you know, a small amount of people. Was Halley's Comet a hot topic Halley's, back in the... Halley's Comet. Actually, ChatGPT said it was Halley. ChatGPT is trying to take us over. It's double L, H-A-L-L-E-Y. I remember it as Halley's Comet. Basically Halley, what Halley's it was, Comet. <laughs> what it was, was it was something that you could see that was just passing. You didn't even need a... Um, Telescope? No, to see it. You could just see it because um, it was passing by Earth so closely, even though it's... Sure, hundreds of yeah. thousands of miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it was a bit of a, of a phenomenon for a couple of weeks. Because it orbits in a particular um, schedule, Pattern. right? Yeah. Like, so we know when it's It's predictable around. where it's going to be. Right, yeah. right. Do you remember seeing, like, did, mm-hmm. was that a big deal? Did you go oh, to yeah. see it or go yeah. outside to see it? You could just, I mean, uh, where I lived was so flat and it wasn't, yeah. uh, we didn't have huge forests or anything like that so there was like a good two or three day span where you just looked up and like there it was and probably um not as much uh light noise in your no, area because you were a not. little bit more in a rural area so yeah. but yeah. yeah i do remember okay. the, the craze like oh, surrounding that's so funny. It. yeah okay well that this mission was part of that um and it was also going to launch some new satellite equipment common sure. objective Prepare of some things probably mm. uh, you know, a basic well, mission. I didn't read anything about that, oh, about okay. prep about repairing anything. Um, so, but launching new satellite equipment. And then of course, all shuttle missions include a whole bunch of scientific experiments, right? Like that's half the reason sure. of, of doing this stuff. Taking air samples, things like that. All sorts of, all yeah. sorts of science stuff goes on. We brought a block of cheese up here. Let's see what, what happens to it in zero. <laughs> but seriously, like just little stuff like that. I think they're a little more advanced than that. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. It was government um, cheese. <laughs> government cheese. Um, so also famously, Krista McAuliffe was going to broadcast live on Wednesday, January 29th. Now, this is a, in a timeline of the original launch, which we'll right, because, we're going to go into, yep, right? Sure. But she was going to broadcast live on a school day, right? That was the whole idea. Wednesday, January 29th, twice, once at 11.40 Eastern Standard Time and one at 1.40 Eastern Standard Time. So 11.40 a.m. and 1.40 p.m. So it, it could time out for both coasts, too, right? Sure. Kids all over the United States could watch um, one or both of those broadcasts so the first lesson that she was going to give in the morning on on that day was called the ultimate field trip which is how i named our first episode and that would it would feature like a tour of the shuttle and answer all the how do you go to the bathroom in space and all the stuff that kids how do you eat in space exactly how do you bring a block of cheese into space (laughs) you freeze dry it and reconstitute it Um, and then the second lesson would be called where we've been, why we're going or where we're going, why? So that's what I named this episode, right? Um, and it's a lesson in why and how science experiments are conducted on board and the importance of space travel to science. And Krista was going to conduct scientific experiments, not necessarily for the purposes of like, okay, we've done this shit before. We know this shit. This is for the kids to see this stuff getting conducted, right? Like this is what we do in space. Greg Jarvis um, was doing like real experiments, like Mm -hmm. the stuff they were actually conducting. I know he was. I'm not sure um, who else was, but for sure he was. 
Um, and classrooms could also keep tabs on Challenger, like during the week via Mission Watch broadcasts, which were hosted by Krista's backup candidate for the Teachers in Space program, Barbara Morgan. Oh. Who okay. we saw, and I think it's in that. I saw the video and then we saw it in the documentary on Netflix. Um, when she's announced well, as the. Well, yes, but when she's watching the launch. Oh, that's right. She and you there. see her go like, uh oh, yeah. Mm hmm. Right. Oh, man. Yeah. Challenger was also set to be the first orbit around the Earth containing legal American currency. Oh. <clears throat> in the form of two newly minted coins, a silver dollar and a five dollar gold coin in honor of the Statue of Liberty's centennial year oh, of 1986. How about that? Mm-hmm. How about hey. that? <laughs> Challenger would also be the first shuttle to launch from Pad 39B, last used in the Apollo-Soyuz test project in 1975. The shuttle was scheduled to take six days, landing on the seventh day. As to what those dates would be, well, that ended up being kind of complicated. Got a little shifty. Yeah. And if you've consumed any information about this disaster, you're probably well aware that the Challenger experienced multiple launch delays and that this... Initial timeline was not only completed, but not even started on time. And these delays go back quite a ways, um, but that's not common. Uh, or sorry, that's not uncommon, right? <clears throat> the tiniest thing can shift these schedules. They're all, it's just a hugely detailed, intermingled timeline with between the different Personnel, the different trainings, the different launch launches of different shuttles, all that. And literally every detail needs to be considered to avoid a catastrophe, which in this case, sure. that even didn't happen, right? So every time a change or adjustment is required to any one of, like, millions of tiny details, it can delay the eventual mission. Yeah, because this, this is not like, well, it's raining, but we can still go. This right. is your... Just to get into outer space, all sorts of factors need to be considered. Right. The launch is very... The launch is a good example of, like, a very particular thing, right? But there's a lot of other stuff that can affect it. That's the uh, aerospace engineering come kicking in where yeah. everything has to be exact. Exactly. Um, and the closer you get to the launch, the more significant these delays can become, obviously. <clears throat> so the planning for the Challenger's 10th mission, or STS-51L, started back in 1984. The final cargo integration review, called the CIR, for the mission was completed in June of 1985. So the CIR was a critical step required to make sure that everything on board the shuttle, all the stuff, the cargo, was fit to fly under the conditions the shuttle could bear, right? So, like, we're putting all this shit on board, but is it all cool to be put on board? Right. Uh, and at that point, the final flight review could begin. But there were delays, so that was the cargo... The CIR was done in June 85, but they had some delays in the final flight review... Because delays were caused by the crew switch-up on Columbia. Mm. Congressman Bill Nelson took Greg Jarvis's place, right? And every single person creates their own variables, sure. right? Every single crew member. So you don't just easily swap out a crew member, maybe with their backup, right? Because you have those backup plans, mm. but not just with like... Like, oh, wait, we were going to have so-and-so, and now it's Greg Jarvis, so... Let's see what he can do. Like, yeah, right. No, you're going to plan that out ahead of time. Right, you have, you have to. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> the flight plan is so specific, right? So even that sort of a change requires a lot of recalibration. The teacher in space program was also a variable. It was the first time. And Krista's selection as the teacher in space was only announced in July of 85. So they had finalized the cargo review in June, and they still didn't know who the teacher who, was going to yeah. be. Like, okay, we got it narrowed down, but who's going to be the actual person? So, yeah, so it was like she trained for like about exactly six months. Yeah, just about. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> Even though Krista was chosen, it was like the 11th hour, like, hey, we need to start training this person. 
that NASA was finally given the specifics about what she was actually supposed to do in space. She was a giant variable, and um, as is not uncommon... Right, she had no specialty. Right. And as was... Uh, not as is not at all uncommon interagency communication <laughs> and intra-agency communication within the federal government is not always perfect no. to say the least the very least mm-hmm. so pretty much as soon as Krista was selected the crew was starting their training they were all very well trained. The, the problem in this whole story does not lie in the crew at all. They were well trained, completely certified. Every single one of them, including Krista, exceeded all of their required training sure. hours. There was no problem. Uh, there was a two week delay in getting them into a shuttle simulator that caused the crew to have to like back end a lot of their training they were often working 70 plus hours a week yeah, in their training yeah. it was Not intensive surprising. yeah it was it was very intense um but despite the hard work behind challenger uh getting off the ground delays were impacting the shuttle's eventually doomed twin columbia so the shuttle mission just before challenger's 10th was columbia's 7th this is the one that bill nelson was on that greg jarvis was supposed to be on Columbia's launch was supposed to be on December 18th, 1985, and that was rescheduled after a delay in the checks required on one of the orbiters, and the reschedule was due to take place on December 19th, 1985, also known as my first birthday, which we have video footage of, which is very interesting. How about it? Mm -hmm. How about it? How about it? There I am, all bald and sweaty. That's all, that was all one. <laughs> the uh, so that time they made it as far as the countdown. So they were like ready to go, right? But the countdown was stopped with fourteen seconds left. So like they're on board the whole thing. They scrapped it That's because crazy. of a wonky reading in the shuttle's hydraulic system. I mean, if mm. I were the crew, I would rather. They halt and say, hold on, there's something wrong. Okay, get me out of here. <laughs> if you figure that You're out, You're going to have to fix you? something. Yeah. Please, thank you. Do yes. that. You do that. It's really best if we do it while we're still on the ground. <laughs> yes. We don't want to have to pull in Apollo 13 again. No. We don't want to fit much. square pegs into round holes. Exactly. Using just this and this. Yeah. <laughs> still one of the... Best and, like, most memorable visual scenes in a movie. Yeah. That's my opinion. Yeah, they sold you the math with just a, a simple visual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This has to turn into this. Exactly. It was it was very effective. Uh-huh. So the launch was pushed, I, I'm going to guess due to the holidays, it was pushed past Christmas and New Year's. Probably. Yeah. Pushed to January 7th, 1986, then to January 10th. Both of these were canceled due to weather conditions, and it took up till January 12th, 1986, so almost a month after its originally scheduled launch, to get Columbia launched and on its way. And of course, every time Columbia's schedule shifted, it's that shifted Challenger. The, yeah. yeah. So once Columbia was officially in outer space, the final stage of preparation, the flight readiness review, took place for Challenger. It was like, okay, we're a go for January 22nd. 1986. Of course, that's not what happened, right? They had to squeeze in one more delayed simulation training, so the launch was delayed to the 23rd. Sure. Then they rescheduled again to the 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th. It got punted all the way down to the January 28th. And they really shouldn't have done it the day they did it either. Exactly. I mean, yes, yes. Long and short, yes, which we'll I mean, get the, into the, next week, right? In a, in a weird way, the publicity that this flight was receiving... Mm-hmm added a variable that maybe nobody considers like you know the public is expecting us to get this thing off the ground mm-hmm. if we keep delaying it yeah oh and whose fault would that have been I believe it would have huh. been the fault of capitalists like who namely though i wonder the director of nasa i feel like it might go higher than him like trying to put ronnie who... oh there we go motherfucker she reagan goes, she goes down she goes down <laughs> That, that is an actual Motley Crue song. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it <laughs> yes, is. It, it sounds like a it Motley Crue song. It definitely is. I saw them perform it. 
and knew it when I was 12, but I didn't really realize what he was talking about. I'm yeah. like, yeah, she goes down to Myrtle Beach. Like, yeah. I've, been, I've been there. Yeah, you know, she goes down like Nancy Reagan. <laughs> it was only 20 years later when I heard them play it live. I'm like, oh, that's what he's talking uh, about. <laughs> well, it's like, it's, didn't Van Halen do Love in an Elevator, Giving It Up no, While... Was, uh, no, Giving It Up While I'm Going Down. Oh, Aerosmith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're all right. <sighs> Anyway, the primary takeaway from all of these delays does include a couple of interesting details. First, had the launch taken place on the 25th or 26th, that's a Saturday or a Sunday. would have been a weekend. Now, plenty of people would watch the launch, oh, but it wouldn't course. have been broadcast in schools. It's a weekend. Right. And unlike Japan, we don't go to school on weekends. I don't even know if that's true, but did was, anybody ever tell gonna... you that as a kid? No, I don't so, think so. I'd love to Snopes this. I probably should. When I was growing up, it was always like, well, you should be grateful. You should, you could be in Japan. They go to school every day of the week. They don't even get weekends, kids in Japan. That's, I have no idea if that's true or if that's not, like a... I hope not. <laughs> a little thing that parents I, say. It said back really in suck. the 90s. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to look it up. Yeah, um, yeah that'd be terrible. Like, you, you need, like, your off time here and there. Yeah. Yeah, even as a as, child. As, as, even as an adult. Yes. <laughs> we worked 10 straight days. Yes. <laughs> um, and then another thing is, you know, one of the major causes of the delays is the date was getting, you know, incrementally pushed was the weather. It was yeah. a, it's always a variable mm-hmm. anywhere you are. Um, but also it's worth noting that Cape Canaveral is in an interesting position within the state of Florida. So it's on the East Coast Almost about halfway up the state of Florida, like in the middle. So like mm-hmm. almost, but not quite, I think it's slightly south, but mostly due east of Orlando, which is very central Florida. Um, so it's, this is still the sunshine state. You know, you're not getting down to any cold, like hugely cold temps it, compared to where you grew up or anything. Like you're not compared even getting to, close. Compared to January and most of the rest of the United States. A lot of it's, the rest of the United it's States. It's not yeah. supposed to be mm-hmm. and it winds up being what, like thirty two degrees? In or the something? low twenties actually. Yeah, at launch. Mm-hmm. Which is not at launch, no, the oh, the morning okay. in the morning, earlier gotcha. in the morning. But yeah. Which yeah, for Florida anywhere, like even if you're on like the panhandle part, that's it's going to be like, well, this is way too cold. What's yeah. going on? <laughs> there are occasional frost warnings and freeze warnings. Yeah, I don't doubt that. In Florida. And that can actually really devastate, especially citrus growers. That's a huge issue for that. Um, but really, aside from that, the major thing in Florida is rain mm-hmm. and hurricanes. Yep. Right? And, <clears throat> and rain and storms can kind of appear almost out of nowhere. Sometimes they're really reliable, right? Like during... The summer, you're going to get a, oh, an afternoon thunderstorm, like just because of how the air currents work mm-hmm. and everything and all the fronts, but, um, and the, where the air converges, but that's, that tends to be sort of the biggest variable. And when you're in January, especially back in 86, when climate change hasn't had an additional, what it is now, 36 years or 37 years to work at it, um, you're not you're not getting a hurricane. So January is a very safe month in terms of hurricanes. It's why it makes sense not to launch in August, right? Necessarily, yeah. yeah don't because want to chance that. or September, which is a real hot month mm-hmm. for hurricanes in the Atlantic. Um, but also, Cape Canaveral is like, in general, just far north enough that, especially back in this time, you might hit an occasional freeze. You talk about Miami, uh uh-uh, that's not happening. There was one snow in 1977, and that was about it. (laughs) Like a couple days after I was born, something like that. Yeah, and it literally, my mom saw it, because she was in school, and she was in college, and she she said, she's like, it was the weirdest thing, but of course not a a flake of it stuck to anything. (laughs) It just all melted instantly. It was basically rain, right? It was the net effect. Um, But... Still, in Cape Canaveral, you can get the incredibly rare cold snap. And that's exactly what happened. Um, And they were picking one of the coldest months, the end of January. It is. the January is the coldest month of the year. Especially January into February. Mm -hmm. That's that's like a real cold uh, window there. Um, But, interestingly, cold wasn't the initial concern to launching the Challenger. It was wind. Sure. 
So the crew actually boarded Challenger on January 27th. They were pulled back out. We saw it in the documentary, mm-hmm. right? The crosswinds were too strong. Yep. And so they, even though you have this big, powerful uh, single rocket booster it's thingy. It's not made you to know. go through that, so no. they pulled back. Or at the very least, again, it's a variable. That they didn't consider. Exactly, yeah. that you don't want to introduce without mm-hmm. Making like what sure if they, you know what you're doing. What if that knocks them off the window? They need to get through the atmosphere. Right, right, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Because all that shit's planned out, too. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the problem would end up being it sat overnight in well under freezing conditions in the low 20s Fahrenheit. Um, that is extremely cold for Florida. It is. Like, that might <laughs> yeah. as well be, like, 50 below. Like, if... The, if, if that was the weather, like, it's somewhere in New York that night. It would have been like, ah. Oh, well, it's a, it's a it's not a, ba- not a bad I, night. Yeah. All, all I need tonight is a toque and a vest. Right? <laughs> you know, but you're not ever thinking Florida is in the low 20s. At, no. like Like, at any given time. No. Um, it's, <laughs> it's actually really hilarious to see, like, um, if it hits, like, the... 50s in south florida you see people like bundling oh sure up. yeah it's like it it's kind of funny it's but, like global yeah. warming my ass <laughs> so ice was a concern and a lot of attention was paid to make sure that the shuttle wasn't all iced up for the launch right that was a big concern that delayed the launch even further on the 28th not kicking it to the next day but just later later that in day. the morning yeah mm-hmm. exactly um so the ice team was working on the launch site challenger crew was eating breakfast suited up they boarded again this time for the final time in every sense of the word and they sat in the spacecraft that would soon kill them while the final inspection of for ice was carried out then the Challenger launched at 11.38 a.m. on Tuesday, January 28th, 1986. So, what is... Well, actually, let me let me get this far, and then we'll, I'll ask you for your recollections. Okay. So, the four crew... There are four crew members heard on the transcript, the voice transcript of the Challenger. It's very brief, because they... Because they just it was seventy three seconds. They were they were launched for seventy three seconds. So they were probably like, "Go, we're in the air." Well, let me tell you. Oh, okay. Tell you what it was. Um, So the four people who were heard were Commander Dick Scobie, Pilot Michael Smith, Mission Specialist Ellison Onizuka, and Mission Specialist Judy Judith Resnick. Um, Judy had the first word on liftoff. She (laughs) it's written in the transcript as. All right, <laughs> like with the extra extra yeah, letters. <laughs> she just was like, "All right, <laughs> Shamrock shakes. Let's go. Let's go." <laughs> and then uh, Michael. She suddenly became Canadian. I know, right? She's she's from Akron. <laughs> yes. And then that was swallowed by Michael saying, "Here we go." Uh, the crew commented on the feeling of entering Mach One, <laughs> like, "Wow, this is fast." And Judith noted that it was, this is how the transcript reads, quote, expletive, hot, end quote. <laughs> so fucking hot yeah. is what she was saying, right? And I have to say, um, it's really, small, small soapbox. Here, let me get, let me get my soapbox it's pretty here. Small. About um, censorship as it pertains to cursing. I actually have more and more of a problem with that, especially like a transcript. That should be a literal interpretation, regardless of expletives. It's like, these people died, and your biggest concern is that one of them said fuck? I mean, George Carlin did a whole routine around this. He's like, all language is is, uh, conveying a thought. So even if you put the word fuck or effing, the thought has already been conveyed. Exactly. People, people know what it means. If you say, if, even if you say expletive, <laughs> you can fill it in. Exactly. Yes. And then I also stru- I also have a big problem with, we are in, an, uh, with now, you know, not so, maybe not so much back in 1986, but now I have a problem with um, cursing censorship because we're teaching. Ch- <laughs> Most people don't know what it actually means anymore. What? Uh, whatever. Okay. Go, go on. Children are um, subjected to active shooter drills on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. 
and many times are subjected to, uh, to actual active shooters. And yet we think they're too precious to be exposed to the word shit, which they just giggle at, you know. Um, I, and just also. I mean, it is kind of a funny so, word. Yeah. yeah it's Especially so, if you're eight. But what I'm saying is it's fucked up how we're like, oh, no, let's keep these children so innocent. It's like, you want to keep them innocent? Have fucking proper gun control. And then they don't have to worry about getting shot yeah, so in the they, head at school. So they can live a full life. Huh. What? Huh? Like, I'd rather a kid, like, be exposed to all sorts of curse words than to ever have to worry about An dying active shooter drill. From being murdered, exactly. Yeah. It's just so hypocritical, and, like, we need to stop being so precious. I understand, like, not every other word in every other piece of media no, or whatever. Of course not. <laughs> but that's fine, but, you know... You gotta slip it in occasionally. If you do, yeah, it's fine. I... I Lindsay, like, Lindsey Graham was crying the other night, and he slipped it in. <laughs> Did he? He said bullshit. Really? Yes. I was okay. So now I I I hate Lindsey Graham, but now I hate him minus point zero 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 two percent ounces less because <laughs> because my contention is that they need to do more swearing in Congress. Yeah. I, yes, I agree. Yeah, because I think I think it would be more productive. But it's like an anyway. etiquette thing that they can't. No, they can. They're just being assholes. But anyway. So, anyway. That's my soapbox away. So, the last words recorded aboard Challenger, a literal split second prior to the explosion, was Michael saying, "Uh uh-oh. You have two event services. Do you want to use Ticketmaster or Event Seeker? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. I don't want to use either. Stop doing this. (laughs) It took the dramatic effect out yes. of that completely. Yes, it did. Maybe we should try that again. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So if you haven't seen the footage of Challenger exploding, I don't know what to tell you other than you can easily find it. You know, look it up. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's out there. It's some of the most watched footage. I'd say yeah. along with the towers collapsing the whole bit. I thought that the, one of the really interesting parts of the Netflix documentary was mm-hmm. the footage from like that guy in his backyard filming it with his own yeah. camcorder. And then... Yeah. Did you know that it wasn't until 2010 that any of that footage was discovered? Yeah. That's mm-hmm. crazy. But yeah, I mean... Florida is flat. That yes, thing is going. That thing is going way high in the air. So of course, if you, even if you have a, you can see it from South Florida. Even if you have a 1986 mm-hmm. camcorder, you can still pick it up. Yeah. And you, when you see it break apart from his angle, like mm-hmm. he's like, not sure that was supposed That's to happen. Supposed to happen. Like, uh, um, it looks different. And why isn't it still going not in going? five different directions yeah. now instead mm-hmm. of one? Do you want to give your account now of like your recollection of things? Sure. Uh, pretty much all I remember about it is uh, where the TV was. Like, it was on the left side of the classroom, and I was, like, in the second or third row. And you would have been in what grade? Third grade. Okay. I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. Just turned nine. Mm-hmm. On the 16th of January. That's right, just, a, like, less than two weeks earlier. Mm-hmm. And I just remember seeing it explode and being like, hmm, don't think, like, was that supposed to happen? Because yeah. you don't, mm-hmm. I'm nine, I don't know. A lot, I, well, a lot of people didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, like, the Mrs. Leary coming in from the, she was in the classroom next door and being like, did you see that? To, you like, know? to the other teacher? Yes. Who to, was to your our, teacher? My, uh, Mrs. Landry, I think. Okay. Just shout out to Mrs. Landry. Yeah, there you go. Landry, I think. Landry. I think. I don't remember. <laughs> But I remember her coming in, because uh, my mom and this teacher were friends. Oh, okay. And I remember her coming in and saying, like, did you see that? Like, but that's kind of all I remember. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but in, in knowing, like, the talking about, like, the few days later, you know, them telling us, like, oh, it's going to be in history books and stuff like that, but you're nine, you have no yeah. concept of history. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like, mm-hmm. will it? Why? Like, And then you know. you've also said that, like, that... The, the Challenger exploding was like an introduction to mortality for you. Yeah. I think it was for a lot of people. How so? Like, you've, you've well, spoken uh, on that a bit. Uh, like, I couldn't really understand, like, what death was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a hard, yeah. And awesome. I think the confusing thing was, like, seeing news, like, later on in the day, like, seeing interviews with her and 
uh, with, with Kristen, Kristen McAuliffe, McAuliffe, yeah. Being like, oh, she's there, she's alive. She's on the TV, yeah. And not understanding that, no, that's a pre-taped interview or yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was kind of one of the first things, like, huh. Like, Those yeah, it was just... Those people are dead. Yeah, they're yeah. dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I watched it on TV. You saw it happen. Mm-hmm. And then I've, and I've asked, like, people later, later on, people who are around my age group, like, mm-hmm. plus minus, like, five or six, mm-hmm. you know, years... We all saw it. Like, mm-hmm. ev- everybody saw it. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not a person I haven't asked that's around my age group that was like, hey, did you see them? And they're like, yeah, we all, yeah, we were watching it. I think the estimated television audience is somewhere in the 40 million ballpark. Yeah, I don't doubt that. It's a lot of people. Because you're still at a time where not a, not even everybody has cable yet. This is yes, 1986. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But most people have, you know, you got like five or six channels. Right. And obviously this is being broadcast on like ABC or like one of the main channels. And all of the schools were hooked up to yeah. the, you know, maybe, they, they were ready Maybe to the go. schools were hooked up to cable. <laughs> I just remember it came out on the stand that had the classic, it was the TV sure, and the yep, VCR the <laughs> and the VCR underneath that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. The classic AV cart. Yes. Mm-hmm. Classic. Classic. But yeah, that that's my recollection of it is just uh, where the TV was in the classroom, like where I was, like mm-hmm. seeing it, and then the teacher next door coming in and being like, "Did you see that? Like, did that mm-hmm. just happen? Like, yeah. almost as like a confirmation, probably from her, like, right? Just kind of shock like, and disbelief. Like, did that? Did you see the same thing I saw? Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, I did. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. You know, we know what happened to the spaceship parts, right? Yeah. It all exploded. Well, broke and they apart. Were, I mean, they were collecting... They were oh, collect- we're going to talk yeah, about okay, that. We're sure, going to talk sure. about that. Um, but we're going to focus on what happened to the crew. Yeah. And this is your trigger warning for yeah. that. Um, because that's literally the only thing that matters, ultimately, right? It is. It, to, especially to their friends and family, but really to all humans on a human level, right? Even institutionally, if that's not the biggest financial loss, it doesn't matter. It's, no. the, it's the biggest loss to humanity is the loss of human life. So, um, and then also, like, millions of people and all of their coworkers <laughs> saw them die. Yeah. Like, for all intents, but not literally, you know, but, you know. If you were on mission control... I mean, those are all people that they work with and stuff like that, and they knew when it. Well, yes, they they out. absolutely did, and they that was when they um, the uh, commander or whoever of mission control was like, lock this down. Yep. Everything gets preserved because they knew they knew that it was part of the going to need to be part of the investigation. Everything leading up to this moment needs yep. to be investigated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yep. So. And after this moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the crew cabin was basically in a reinforced aluminum box. Yes. And I mean, that's a simplistic, you know, mm-hmm. way to put it. This is sophisticated equipment, but, um, the, that box didn't explode. It was intact, actually, and came apart from, uh, like, everything was going all over the place, right? Exploding debris, stuff. But the crew cabin became its own entity at that point with all seven crew members locked inside in their seats, right? Um, And they were separated from, like, the flying rocket part of the ship. So they did eventually fall into the Atlantic Ocean, but they didn't just start dropping. They were... They had a lot of momentum, right? this, This thing was on a... A trajectory. And so when the cabin got like flung apart from the rest of the ship, it kept going up um, for about 25 seconds. Oh my God. So they continued to go up higher. They called it a ballistic arc, the, the sort of trajectory that it took. Um, it's estimated they eventually reached 65,000 feet, 20 kilometers. And it's estimated that during this arc, the speeds the crew experienced uh, reached a force between 12 and 20 times oh the force of gravity, God. or 12 to 20 Gs, That's as is known. Mm-hmm. 
I hope they all passed out, but I have a feeling that that's well, not going to happen. So it's basically impossible to relate what 12 to 20 Gs means as a civilian. So people who are trained to be astronauts or fighter pilots or anyone else who's expecting to... Who are going to, to handle G-force. Yes, who are going to experience G-force of such acceleration are literally trained... Interesting question. Oh, shut up. Didn't ask you. Didn't ask you anything. They're watching us. Yeah, jeez. Um... Both, both of our devices. All of our technologies have gone off. Yes. Um, but there does come to a natural point at which the human body probably just can't, can't tolerate it. anymore, right? And spe- there are specialized helmets. There's oxygen. It's estimated they had a few seconds of oxygen in their helmets, and that was kind of it. Um, but even even with helmets and stuff... They aren't meant to help someone stay conscious under the, like, extreme and unexpected G-forces. So, to put into context how much G-force the Challenger crew experienced, the highest amount of G-forces a human is recorded to have experienced in an aircraft, so we're starting with planes, right, Mm -hmm. was in 1967 when test pilot William Knight experienced 7 Gs. And this is roughly the amount of G-forces the Apollo mission crews endured when they re-entered Earth's atmosphere. Coming in hot. (laughs) Quite literally, right? And no, they didn't pass out because they were trained to tolerate, like, seven Gs, right? Mm -hmm. I can't imagine it being very comfortable, but... Um, The USSR's Soyuz spacecraft got up to 8 Gs in reentry. So we know people can handle up to 8 Gs, potentially. But we're talking minimum 12 Gs. That's 50% more. Possibly up to 20, which is more than double. Uh, And that's the known, right? They haven't subjected anybody to more than that. Because at that point, it's like, why? (laughs) You're only going to experience that. If this horrible thing happens to you, basically. And nothing to ease you back down to the ground. Like, everything else fell apart. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, they were on their own in that cabin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's got to be the scariest fucking thing. If you were... Well, so an average person not tolerate... Not trained to tolerate high G-forces can start blacking out at two or three Gs. Sure. <clears throat> so just to, well, don't, I've never done one of these because I'm not an idiot, although that's a really mean thing to say. <laughs> I just don't do rides, right? But I know that there are those G-Force rides, mm-hmm. right? That spin yeah, you around. Yeah, on some of them, yeah. Those are probably, and people still experience oh, yeah. issues with those, oh, right? Oh, yeah, you've got to buckle. There are some where you just you just got to be like, yeah. <laughs> because you're feeling the, uh, mm-hmm. the effects the force. of it. Yeah. Exactly. The force and not in the Star Wars sense. Yeah. Um, So uh, 1G, just for reference, is like what you're experiencing right now. The normal normal effects of gravity. I mean, people who in in car accidents experience... Yeah, sudden force of acceleration. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, So our bodies are used to the normal force of gravity, right? We evolved Mm -hmm. under gravitational force of one so our tissues our bodies they're used to that force what our bodies are not used to is excessive you know exponential growth of those forces so even just like one or two g-forces what that's doing to the human brain is making it harder for blood to get to it Because it's literally working against a pull in the opposite direction. So your brain is up. (laughs) Your body's experiencing direction down or in another direction. And it's harder for your blood or your heart to pump that blood up. Harder for your lungs to expand. Harder for your rib cage to expand to let your lungs expand. So all of that makes breathing hard, makes consciousness hard. You know, and the higher up you go in G-forces, the worse that happens, right? So this is a major case for the potential. So just spoiler alert, none of this is known for sure. But it would sure be possible for the Challenger crew to have passed out due to G-forces. Sure. Right? That's a huge amount of G-forces. 
Also, any cabin depressurization. Sure. They're they're twenty kilometers in the air. The oxygen's real fucking thin up there. Almost non-existent. Yeah, and in a depressurized cabin, they could have passed out from that as well. Um, so even if and we're gonna talk about this more, but it's not known for sh- we cannot say for certain whether they blacked out or not. We don't know. It is possible. We can only hope. It is technically possible that any one of them or all of them could have remained mm-hmm. conscious. It's also possible that any one or all of them passed out or blacked no, out. It's just, we don't know. Um, just, uh, <clears throat> but yeah. let's say, let's say they all blacked out for the sake of argument. Best case scenario, they blacked out, right? But then you have to ask, is that all that happened? They black out and they don't remember a thing, right? They That is the best case scenario because there's no suffering, right? Maybe they realized a split second during the uh-oh portion, you know, when they felt the explosion, maybe. But then hopefully within a couple seconds they were blacked hopefully. out. Hopefully. Right? Yeah. And they never regained consciousness. That's ideal. Um, but the pro... And, and that would have... We would have known that that for sure had happened if that cabin had exploded, right? Then they would have exploded and they'd be gone. And that'd be that. But that's not what happened. They were intact inside this cabin with their bodies going through these extreme conditions, the depressurization, the G-forces. The problem is, as extreme as those things are, depressurization, the G-forces, it's not going to kill a person. Mm -mm. And we know that it didn't kill them. So they didn't die up in up 65,000 feet up in the air. They didn't die there. So when we saw the Challenger explode in the video, they're, they're still alive. alive. Um, and chances are they were alive for approximately two minutes and 45 seconds after the explosion in total. So 25 seconds was spent in that arc, right? They're he- still heading up. Um... And then what is a horrific thought is that the Challenger crew spent an estimated two minutes and 20 seconds falling. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Um, And the problem with that... Not a roller coaster ride you want to sign up for ever. And the problem with that is, say you pass out in within that 25 seconds of the initial arc... Two minutes and 20 seconds is a long time enough so that you can regain your consciousness. It's a long drop. Yes. So so it is certainly plausible that they could have regained consciousness. One or more of them. Or all of them. So the definitive answer on whether this crew suffered is that there is no definitive answer. We actually don't don't know. know. It's largely speculative. In the recovery mission, the remains, and we'll get to that, the remains that they found of the crew members couldn't be used in determining, like, basically what they said is they're kind of broken apart. We know that they're dead of that, you know, but chances are that is what killed them. Ultimately was they, they hit the surface falling 65,000 feet. They hit the surface of the Atlantic ocean inside a reinforced aluminum box on its side at 207 miles per hour. Yeah. Which is, yeah. And a lot of that, a lot of them experienced dismemberment of their bodies as a sure. result. Now, at that point, they're not they're not feeling the dismemberment, which is that is good news. But um, but it's it's you know, did they know up until then? Um, all we can all we can say is we hope not. Right. So once the cabin began falling, within ten seconds, it was free falling. So all those G forces gone. The only, a free fall is literally the only force acting upon a body uh, or a, a mat or whatever is gravity. Hmm? So they were in a full blown uh, free fall. It's for also the, that two, I mean, two it's, minutes. it's gravity working. Like it's, you're coming back down. Yeah. And I hope we all, um. <clears throat> never experience this. Ne- well, I hope we all never think about free falling by Tom Petty the same <laughs> again. Ah, uh, so. Unfortunately, it's because of this fall that 
the crew members could have regained consciousness. The farther they go, the more oxygen comes into the environment, sure. the more repressurized the cabin is. Um, so it is possible that for a, a, even if they gain, even if they lost consciousness for up to about two minutes, some or all of the Challenger crew were conscious and, depending, potentially aware that something horrible was happening. Mm. Um, they wouldn't have known exactly what happened, no, they right? They have, have no controls. They have no um, communication, nothing. All they would have known is that it was bad. And they're all falling and it would be terrifying, basically, mm-hmm. right? Um, but being conscious and being cognizant are two different things. So I guess, say they did regain reconsciousness, the next best case scenario would be that they were super out of it. Right? Not really cognizant, not aware. Again, let's hope. Yeah. Um, So that's the next thing we could hope for. But there's a lot of speculation, a lot of different things out there having to do with how the crew died or for the truly unhinged speculation that they didn't die, which is bullshit. (laughs) Um, Imagine if Twitter had been around. Oh, my God. There was so much bullshit surrounding this. Um, Like, down to, like, a tabloid invented an entire transcript, the secret lost tapes of the Challenger, where some truly mentally ill person literally wrote out a fake transcript of, like, the crew saying Hail Marys and shit, which is so fucked up. Now you just put that on Twitter, and you can release it to the entire world. But can you imagine being so depraved? You're sitting there, like, writing people's fake last words. I'm on Twitter every day. Like, I see depraved people Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Um, and there's conspiracy theories and shit. It's all bullshit. But anyway, while definitive... And, and part of why we know that it's bullshit is because the ans- the defi- definitive answer was that there was not a definitive answer. The m- medical professionals and si- everybody said, we can't know for sure. Yeah, we, like, we'll never they didn't be try to... to make something up. We know it's these things. It's within, here's what could or could not have happened. We're not sure. Right. Well, did, did any of them definitely happen? We'll never know. The only thing we know for sure is that they're all dead because they found remains to all of them. And we'll get into that in a second. Um, but there is, there does appear to be evidence that at some point, some of them were conscious. At what point? We're not sure. Right. have no idea. Um, so in the recovery mission... They found four of the crew's personal egress air packs. So, like, emergency air packs, Mm -hmm. right? Three of these four were activated. That has to happen manually. Yep. So, there were two that were activated. They they could never determine whose they they were. One they could confirm was Commander Dick Scobie's, and that was not activated. Another one that they found activated they could confirm was Michael Smith's. The pilots. His was activated. Because of where the switch on his pack was, it was not necessarily within his ability under the conditions to, like, turn it on for himself. Or I don't even know if, like, that's protocol, if they're supposed to turn it on for each other or what. Yeah, who knows. But because of that, it is thought it's most likely that either Ellison, Onizuka, or Judy Resnick possibly Ron McNair, but uh, Ellison and Judy seem to be the two most likely candidates because of where they were sitting. One of them reached over and turned on his emergency air pack or egress um, air pack. And there are reports that his air pack was at least 75% depleted. And this is an air pack that the oxygen only goes in when you inhale. Sure. So he was inhaling. Yeah. He was breathing mm-hmm. for long enough that he used up most of the air. So there is now that doesn't necessarily doesn't mean, mean that he was, was conscious. conscious. Yes, yeah. but he was alive. He was breathing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the end, yeah, we just don't know for sure. We a hundred percent hope that the crew suffered as little as possible. We're as unaware as possible of what was happening. I feel horrific for their families because their families are never going to know. I'm sure they hope the same. But anyway, um, the fact that, you know, crew members were helping each other, like in the case of Michael's air pack, 
Not surprising. No, like, not even close, not right? These are smart, well-trained, good people. They liked each other. They worked together. And honorable and people do honorable things. Yeah, and they're part you of know? the team. Yes, so. exactly. Yeah. So, um, but the problem was, ultimately, there was just nothing they could have done to make it out of that situation alive. None of the space shuttles had ejection seats, interestingly. So... Yeah. Columbia had been built with two ejection seats, but it was the only shuttle in the fleet to ever have them. And even then, they were disabled and then completely removed. So none of the space shuttles had ejection seats. There were specific reasons for this. Um, for one thing, the way the crew of seven, which was like the standard crew size for these shuttles, sure. the way they were sitting in the cabin wasn't conducive to ejection seats working particularly well, especially for especially for those in the middle, because of the structure surrounding them. It's like, okay, you can eject, but to where? There's all this shit around you, yeah. sort of a thing. Um, another issue, a major issue that they thought, but unfortunately it would have helped the crew of Challenger, is that ejection seats work in speeds and at altitudes experienced for only about the first 100 seconds of launch. The yeah. shit part of that is that this was 73 seconds. It could have helped them in yeah. that instance. Um, so it's not great in retrospect. Although we don't know if they could. Who knows? It's a bunch of who knows. Um, but interestingly, even ejection seats wouldn't have helped Columbia's crew in 2003 upon re-entry. Like, the conditions were not right for that. Finally, a lot of astronauts were just really, really skeptical. Like, a lot of really smart people were like, I don't know how useful this will be, actually. Um, at least in part, because, like, I think it was Robert Crippen, who we'll mention later, who was on the first Columbia crew, was like, so here's the problem. You eject, your parachute goes up, you're in the middle of some sort of explosion with rockets around, your parachute singes and disintegrates yeah, you're and you're just, gone. Yeah. Right? You're safer being in the <laughs> Yeah, in the in like a in the tube. Exactly. Yeah. In the cabin, right? In this case. Um Or if or it goes off get... and you're in space. Like that's <laughs> yeah, not gonna, that's there's... not gonna do anything for you either. Yeah. So there there were and then there was an attitude that these shuttles were so safe they didn't really need them. So, you know, that's not true, but... So in the end, regardless of their level of consciousness, there was no way out for the Challenger crew. They died upon impact with the surface of the Atlantic Ocean, traveling at around 207 miles per hour. Interestingly, Judy Resnick's father, Marvin Resnick, was quoted as putting it really, really straightforwardly. He said, quote... There are no bodies, mind you. There are just bits and pieces. I don't know how, how I can say that nicely. Even though the cabin was partially intact, the crew was not. They were really blown apart, end quote. Which is such like a cognizant thing to say when you're like, probably, keep, I would. that sounds like something I would say when I was kind of mad, kind of pissed off. Be like, you know what? Here's the here's what happened. Here's what happened to my daughter. Let me tell you what happened to my daughter. Yeah. <clears throat> and let me tell you in the course of this lawsuit I'm about to <laughs> right, about to file. So, I talked about the findings from the recovery, but let's talk about the actual recovery mission itself. It's it was a huge undertaking. Sure. Um two recover initially two recovery ships, the Motor Vehicle Freedom Star, Motor Vehicle Motor Vehicle Liberty Star that were recovery vehicles, uh, were deployed. The search area of the Atlantic Ocean was around 486 square just, nautical miles. Yeah. Or about 1,670 square kilometers. It's huge. Impossible it's huge. to cover all of it. Um, now, they were held off about almost an hour after the explosion because they couldn't send out this boat with debris raining down, right? They had to make sure everything that was up had come down. There's nobody to save, right? So this is this is not a rescue mission. This is a recovery mission, and they knew that. Um, so throughout that day, more ships, more aircraft joined the mission, and the surface recovery portion of the mission lasted through February 7th. Sure. And after that, the Navy led the submarine recovery. So then they started oh, going underwater. Oh, sure, because there's... 
plenty of debris that sunk. Absolutely. First, yeah. they want to try and recover whatever they can from the surface. Let's recover what we, we, what we can see. Yes. We'll get Before to the re- it sinks, hopefully, we'll get to the rest right? of the stuff that we know is going to be down there. We'll get to that later because right. it's not going anywhere. Exactly. Jeez. Um, How'd you like to be the coordinator for that? Jeez, yeah, no, no kidding. And you're, you're. They worked for a solid month yeah. before they spotted the cabin, the crew cabin. Mm. Uh, the first, and they went inside. The first crew member to be found was Judy Resnick. Mm. Then they found Krista. Um, and then at that point, they were like, "Look, this is not safe for us to be diving in." When something, when a big piece of metal is all mangled, like there were like knife sharp shards of this thing and everything. They're like, this is not safe for us to dive into. So they're like, we're going to have to winch this thing up. We're going to have to lift this. and We've got visual confirmation that nobody survived. So there's no point in... Well, no, they they were going to lift that thing up. They took a crane and they excavated from the ocean... That cabin. But what I'm saying, like, like what they were kind of saying there, is there's no point to go into it further. Like, you've already seen, like, it's not... Not from a point of the divers. It could be done safely on land. Yeah. But it couldn't be done safely in the water, so... So, as the crew cabin was pulled out of the water on a crane, the recovery crew spotted a blue jumpsuit surfacing. It was the body of Greg Jarvis. Mm-hmm. And within a couple seconds, it had gotten caught up in a wave and washed back under. Which, of course, was, like, horrific to everyone who saw it. They instantly started scrambling. Like, find him. Like, find his body. Obviously, at this point, like, the biggest focus is we need to recover as much of the shuttle as possible and all the rocket boosters and everything because we need to figure out what the fuck happened. And, of course, also, we need to recover as much of the remains of the crew as possible. Because we need to send a casket home to all their families, you know. They they couldn't find him initially. Um, eventually, fellow astronauts Robert Crippen and Bob Overmeyer, I talked about Robert Crippen earlier, um, were involved. And they were, they were just, like, out there because they're, like, all seven of these people need to go home together mm-hmm. like we need all of these people in on it um they searched for five weeks for greg jarvis mm. the last day they were scheduled to to search it was april 15th 1986 this was the last scheduled dive the last chance they found him you're kidding me they found his body wow yep. okay they recovered greg jarvis mm. so they made good on it they sent all seven astronauts home so on April 29th, 1986, all seven crew members were transported from Kennedy Space Center to Dover Air Force Base in Dover, Delaware. Each casket was draped with an American flag and carried past a full honor guard with an astronaut escort. Um, so the identified remains of each crew member were given to their families for burial, but there were some commingled and unidentified remains. Right. They were cremated. And buried at Arlington National Cemetery in a single grave along with all of Judith Resnick's remains. So she and portions of her um, other crewmates were buried together in Arlington National Cemetery with a memorial dedicated in 1987. The grave marker shows like relief portraits of each crew member and it says, quote, in grateful and loving tribute to the brave crew of the United States Space Shuttle Challenger, 20th of January, 1986. And on the back is the famous poem, High Flight, by Canadian Royal Air Force pilot John Gillespie McGee Jr., which ends in the lines, quote, And while with silent lifting mind I've trod, the high untrespassed sanctity of space put put out my hand and touched the face of God, mm-hmm. end quote. <clears throat> Dick Scobie and Michael Smith were also buried at Arlington in individual markers. Ellison Onizuka was buried back home in his home state of Hawaii in Honolulu. Ron McNair was initially buried at a cemetery in his hometown of Lake City, South Carolina, but then his remains were later removed and reburied inside the town at the new Dr. Ronald E. McNair Memorial Park. Oh, okay. 
Krista McAuliffe was buried back in her town of Concord, New Hampshire. Greg Jarvis was cremated, and his ashes were scattered in the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. Uh, Reagan said some shit in the State of the Union dress. I don't care. He's a motherfucker. Not going to dignify it by quoting him here. Uh, but spoiler alert, the subtitle of part three of this series will actually be a quote from him because it's fucking ironic. Of course, the first American astronauts to die during a space flight do not do so without a major investigation. And a major investigation there was, which, of course, will be the topic of our last Challenger episode next week. Fucking bummer. Bummer, bummer, bummer of an episode. Very much is. Damn. But this is the part we all knew was coming, and Mm -hmm. it makes me think about it differently, knowing that they were at least on a... When the whole thing exploded, their capsule was intact, and they just kept going. Yeah. Like that's, yeah, that's that's crazy to think, and then to know that you know some of those people, it seemed like, well, we'll never know. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Let's hope they were not conscious. But if some of them were, like, knew, okay, we're gonna go back down at some point. There and seems what's, there seems to be evidence that at least one of one or a couple of them were conscious for some portion of time. Mm-hmm. What's really remarkable, like I said, honorable people do honorable things, is that. In the abject terror of what was happening to them, they had the presence of mind. Not just to be like, freak out, freak out, freak no, out. Try to help each other out. It was like, I see that switch on Michael's, on Mike's pack, you know, I need to hit that switch. I need to hit that switch. And I mean, it's also, it's also not surprising, I guess, you know, it sounds so remarkable, but these were remarkable people. They, they, were. they were well trained. They were highly intelligent. They were they had been in scary shit before. Two of them were in Vietnam. Yep. Like most of them served in in some branch of the armed services, like during really shit times. Some of them were test pilots. Like they knew how to keep their fucking cool. Yeah. And it's pretty remarkable that with that cool, what they tried to do is help each other out. Exactly. That's that's um Man, I would have sacrificed Ronald Reagan in a fucking heartbeat for every single one of them. Yes. I'd just have sacrificed Ronald Reagan in general. And then, and Nancy. <laughs> oh, yes. Sure. Sure. Just wipe out. <laughs> let's just talk about who we'd wipe out if we let's could. wipe out the Reagans. But let's keep the Challenger crew. They were yes. cool. I'll take that uh, Damn. Bargain. Yes. And, <laughs> you know, it's like every time somebody's like, Oh, this wonderful thing happened. There's proof there's a god. It's like, okay. You heard of the Challenger? <laughs> like, come on. Or numerous other things that mm. we've covered. This is just an every, example. Every episode we've <laughs> <Yes>. covered. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I don't think there's a better place to leave it off on uh, episode two going into episode three. Nope. And, yeah. Yeah, this was the hard part. It is the like, hard part. Well... The investigation part I only know a little bit about of, mm. so I'm curious to hear what's all the other stuff that I don't know about I've never heard, because this was a thing that was a thing for six months, probably, which, a long like time. that's what you remember, yeah. Long time in the mm-hmm. news cycle, and then it's just, and I'm sure, they, well, not sure, they did, they did make discoveries along the way of what oh, yeah. happens, mm-hmm. but it got further and further away from... You know, mm-hmm. top of mind. So, which happens with every occurrence with any, with in history. Anything. That's yes. literally what. Even what seems like the most devastating thing, nine eleven is now just oh yeah, that was nine like, eleven. That thing that happened twenty two years ago. You know, still don't fully know, but it happened. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, people who were there get older, and then nobody remembers it because eventually, you know, like who remembers yeah. Pearl Harbor now? Basically nobody. Basically nobody. Yeah. You know that's that's how history works. So, well, leaving off on that, that was part two of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Where we've been, where we're going, why. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week.